You are about to become a legend in your own time and enter an alternate world where dreams and nightmares come true with fire-breathing reality. Special microcomputer circuitry will generate the alternate time frequencies and dimension warps necessary for finite control and monitoring of your alter presence via television, while you remain physically secure in the relative safety of your home dimension. Stay tuned, Odyssey 2 fans. For it is time to embark upon the quest for the rings. Ah, the late 70s and early 80s. The boom years of the video game industry. And my game system was the Magnavox Odyssey 2. Sleek, stylish, futuristic, and totally underappreciated. Let's change that. I'll dig through the Odyssey 2 library, introduce you to each game, offer a few of my own expanded memories of playing them back in the day, and we'll see if those games hold up today. I'm Earl Green, and this is Select Game. Welcome back to Select Game. Summer is upon us, and let me tell you, summer is a bummer. Ugh. Um, I haven't really felt like playing a whole lot of video games recently, honestly, because here's the thing that's on my mind. The electric bill from having the air conditioning running. I am one of the world's worst about finally giving up on open windows and turning on the air conditioning. It's not that I like the miles and miles of allergens that surround my house, but I like having electric bills that are under a hundred bucks. Um, I'm fully expecting the next one to clock in somewhere around 200. I really love summer. Of course, I'm not the most physically active person in the world, so anything that causes me to sweat just by stepping outside the door and <laughs> existing, <laughs> it's no bueno. So <laughs> here lately it's gone from me and cats and open windows to me and the boys, three cats, two droids, no questions asked. Actually, I kind of forgot where I was going with that. So yeah, there hasn't been a whole lot of whole lot of gaming going on. There's been some uh, some online gaming going on with my oldest. We uh, <laughs> we play a couple of the uh, free server-based games, and we. I would say we get on and we pester the noobs, but we are noobs and we get pestered. I think that's a much more uh, much more honest assessment. We are, you know, we've tried to team up on people and it's just like, wait a minute, where'd you go? <laughs> Where's my backup? Yeah, preview of my later life, no doubt. In the news. have some Odyssey 2 homebrew news for you. Orders are still being taken for an Odyssey 2 port of the Atari VCS game Space Cavern, which was a uh, game originally released in 82 for the Atari by Games by Apollo. 100 copies are being produced. It's kind of on the pricey side because they've um, a lot of Odyssey 2 games just include a manual. This one has the full cardboard box replicating the original Games by Apollo packaging design. Neato. Maybe just a little bit rich for my blood. We'll, uh, we'll have to see. 
a few others that will probably, you know, these had just been announced as I'm recording this. They may or may not be out in the open where you can order them by the time you, uh, by the time you hear this podcast. The uh, Parker Brothers prototype of Spider-Man has been re-released again for the Odyssey 2, this time in a cardboard box similar to the Parker Brothers cardboard boxes for their European and Brazilian releases. There will be 50 copies of that, and there will also be 50 copies of a new Rafael Cardoso homebrew called Forbidden Lands. Looks like another nifty adventure game, which kind of works out with this show's theme. And I've been promising you for a couple of months that I might have some insider information for you. Well, here it is. The manual cover artwork that I had been working on for a new Odyssey 2 homebrew has finally gotten the thumbs up. It will be available from packratvg.com. I did the artwork as a combination of digital and hand-drawn elements. And I will tell you that uh, on the on the artwork, there is a guest appearance by the star of a previous Odyssey 2 homebrew that I did the artwork for. I like to throw in little homages like that, just for giggles, especially if it's the especially if it's the same programmer, because I've been doing Odyssey 2 cover artwork since the early 2000s, and I don't know if anyone realizes this. Uh, two of Rene Van Den Enden's game, uh, Calculator and Pong for Odyssey 2, they both have the same sort of robot hand design in them because they were both games by Rene, and I was trying to uh, sort of link them together. So you'll have to see which of the stars of one of Chris's previous games uh, pops out from behind something on this cover artwork. Anyway, that'll be available from packratvg.com. This is the night of the tongue twisters. And you should go check that out. <laughs> I look forward to that coming out. It, it, it took a... That artwork took a long time for a variety of personal reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with the game or the publisher. It was uh, it's basically a hold-up on my end, and I apologize for that. Still, I mean, from... From the sound of this, it's not like we're really hurting for new material for the Odyssey 2 or the video pack. So that brings us to the subject of this month's podcast, The Quest for the Rings. Quest for the Rings was released at the end of October 1981, alongside another little game you may have heard of called KC Munchkin. You know, that might just... If you're looking for a flashpoint where the Odyssey 2 came into its own, that might just be it. In Quest for the Rings and KC Munchkin at the same time, you're talking about two of the high points of the system's library right there at the same time. However, uh, this may also have been the beginning of the end, the twilight of the good times. Because it was just three weeks later that Atari filed suit over KC Munchkin after sending legal reps out to various game stores and uh, asking Magnavox dealers if they had a game that was like Pac-Man, which, you know, whereupon, of course, they would immediately fork over a copy of KC Munchkin and say, this game is exactly like Pac-Man. And so, basically, the... (laughs) 
the field the field sales team in the local dealers not even Magnavox not even Magnavox itself which actually put out two memos discouraging sales force from describing Casey Munchkin in that way the the local dealers sealed the doom of Casey Munchkin and arguably the Odyssey too we'll talk about Casey another time you don't think I'm going to leave that game off this podcast, do you? The suggested retail price of Quest for the Rings was upward of $50. It seems like I remember the introductory price at the time of release being like $72, $72.99, or something like that. This is, a, uh, this is a case where there is more than one cook in the kitchen. The cartridge was designed and programmed by Ed Averett. Ed programmed at least two-thirds of the Odyssey 2 library single-handedly. The board game, however, was designed by Stephen S. Lehner of Bradford and Coote. One of these days I'm going to hear from one of these guys as to whether or not I'm pronouncing that right. There are two primary sources of information about the gestation of this game. One of them was a Chicago newspaper article published on November 26, 1981, just a few weeks after the game's release in October. Lehner is quoted as saying, What is different about the game is that players work as a team, not as opponents. One player can keep the monsters busy, while the other squeaks through to the rings. And you're going to find out when we get to the gameplay segment here shortly that that's almost the only way to survive this game. In fact, that it's kind of flagged in the manual for the game because the uh, the manual points out that self-sacrifice may be needed. Yeah, buddy, one of you guys is going down while the other one gets the prize. I hate to tell you. This same article from the from the uh, newspaper in Chicago credits Laner and Bradford, Ron Bradford of Bradford and Cout, with the Cout Coot <laughs> Wankel Rotary Engine <laughs> with the concept for the game and paints Averett as a mere programmer. It also says that the name of the firm working the Odyssey 2 marketing and design for Magnavox was, in fact, Laner, Bradford, and Count Coot. They had been working with Magnavox since 1971 when they devised the screen overlays for the original Magnavox Odyssey. In fact, they also designed the box and all of the peripheral material that came with that, the playing cards and so on, which was, you know, that was a monumental effort because if you've ever seen a Magnavox Odyssey, and I've been known to bring my box Odyssey setup to events like the uh, Oklahoma Video Game Expo year after year. There is a lot of stuff in there. Poker chips, playing cards, screen overlays, uh, board game style spinners, you name it. I mean, I'm sure that kept them busy for about a year working on that. Ron Bradford was interviewed... Okay, there's a third primary source of information. Ron Bradford was interviewed on William Cassidy's Odyssey 2 homepage, which I will post a link to in this uh, in the supplemental material for this podcast. Ron Bradford said that Laner had actually gone freelance prior to the conception of the Master Strategy Games and was now working on his own, but they were longtime friends, and so they really had no problem 
getting together and working on this project again. In Electronic Games Magazine number two from March 1982, there's an interview with Lehner and Ed Averett. It says they took half a year to work on the game trying to achieve what they called a perfect loop where the board game interactions affected the video game and vice versa. I'm sad to note that Stephen S. Lehner died in 2004. Now, I'm not sure how much... Lehner is usually described in much of this material as a writer, as an an ad agency writer who worked with Bradford for many years, all the way back to 71. And while Bradford himself was more of the visual designer, graphic designer. And so therein you kind of you kind of see that you had a couple of guys who were old buddies. The idea for this game had probably been in their heads for ages and you know, as soon as Magnavox was asking them actively for ideas to supplement whatever Ed Averett was coming up with. This probably rose to the surface because it had been in the back of their heads for ages, and I know what that's like. It's really neat when someone actually accepts the idea and says, yeah, let's do that. The packaging for Quest for the Rings is a lavish affair (laughs) I think that's probably underselling it. The box is as wide as two box Odyssey 2 games side by side, and it is as thick, or as tall perhaps, as two Odyssey 2 boxed games stacked one on top of the other. There's gold foil printing on both the box and the manual, and the manual is really nice on this thing. I... I remember being nonplussed in the 80s when The Legend of Zelda came out in this shiny gold cartridge because, you know, I already had the quest for the rings. Uh, you know, I, I was not impressed by a cartridge <laughs> with a shiny casing. The book, the uh, instruction book, really does a lot of setup for story and descriptions and is loaded with you know much more artwork than you usually get with an Odyssey 2 game. And in fact, we'll talk about the artwork later because it was recognized by Magnavox that there might be a market for the artwork outside of the game itself. It really was that good. The story portions of the documentation reference the Seal of Solomon, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Wagner's Ring Cycle. Now here's the fun, the fun thing to uh, keep in mind before we get to really getting into the nitty-gritty of what is in the box and how you play the game. We actually opened a never-before-opened copy of this game just for this podcast. I have something like three copies of Quest for the Rings floating around. One of them is a box with the cartridge in it. Everything else has gone missing. That may well be my original. There's another one that is missing some pieces. And this one that we opened for the podcast still had everything sealed in the little plastic 
baggies. And it was just, I probably should have left it as is. I just couldn't, you know? Of course, I'm that guy who opens his toys. I have almost no action figures still on the uh, still on the package, so sorry. <laughs> Someone out there is probably screaming, "No!" You know, slow motion jumping across the room. No. No, we opened it and we played it quite badly, in fact. <laughs> so let's actually read some of the uh, some of the manual here. This is epic stuff. You are a member of a small company of legendary heroes who embark on the supremely dangerous search for the rings. You choose your own role in the quest. Whichever identity you choose will provide you with potent weaponry. As the warrior, you carry an enchanted sword. As the wizard, you cast formidable spells. As the mysterious phantom, you can walk through walls. As the elven changeling, you can wear the mirror cloak of invisibility. The Ringmaster dispatches his dread nightmare minions to guard the rings, treacherous fire wraiths and orcs, the unspeakable spydroth tyrantulus, malevolent doom-winged bloodthirsts, and the hideous fire-breathing dragons, Scortha, Goldfang, and Mithrog. I'm amazed I got through that without tripping all over my tongue, considering how the intro to the podcast went. The dragons are the largest of the hideous armored witch worms, which were originally thought to come from the stars. The Spydroth Tyrantulus is horror and death incarnate. That's nice. It delights in the devouring of living flesh, which it believes will enhance its lifespan. So it, it's a Kardashian. Do-winged bloodthirsts are the winged terrors thought by some to have given birth the vampire legends. They impale their victims on their fangs. The orcs are diminutive ogres and the natural enemies of everything on earth. They are quite ugly, belligerent, and malicious. Actually, I think I went to high school with the orcs. Anyway, they even kill for sport. The fire wraiths are the enslaved souls of the dragon's past victims. Their touch is death. I should be reading all of this in in that voice be uh, (laughs) affecting a British accent or something. So, basically, to understand what's, you know, what's up with this game, what makes it special, Quest for the Rings is a hybrid board game and video game. It comes with a game board at least as nice as any you've ever seen with anything else. It's, uh, it's like something you would see as the frontispiece to a Lord of the Rings novel. There are several different kinds of game pieces included with this. There are plastic, there are brown plastic domes signifying various castles and locations in the game. Underneath the dome he is sort of inlaid, embedded, engraved into it embossed, there's the word I'm looking for, embossed. I knew it was something that started with E-M. It took me a while. Embossed on the opposite side, the underside of the dome, is a symbol corresponding to the keyboard overlay, which we'll get to in a minute, for what kind of environment the players are wandering into. There are four different kinds of environments. 
underneath these domes the ringmaster, basically the the dungeon master for the purposes of this game, places coins with varying kind signifying varying kinds of monsters. These symbols again correspond to symbols on the keyboard overlay. And many of the castles may have a ring coin underneath. And it, when I say coin, I am not talking about some punched out piece of cardboard. The things are actually made of metal. So it's, it, you really can kind of see a, a direct through line from the Magnavox Odyssey to this game. You know, it's like one wonders if maybe the quest for the rings hadn't been bouncing around in someone's head since 1971. And finally, the Odyssey 2 had the brain power that the original Magnavox Odyssey, being, you know, not even being microprocessor based, lacked the ability to pull off. The dungeons. Okay. So we're talking here about the four different kinds of environments. The dungeons are in castles which were built by men and then captured by the ringmaster's nightmare armies. The infernos, these towers of lava, are kept molten by the ringmaster's magic. The shifting halls, the earth shivers under the ringmaster's evil spell. The very walls of the castles conspire to block the heroes. Crystal caverns, the Windwielders built these labyrinths with invisible walls at the Ringmaster's command. I'm guessing since Bentley Bear is not mentioned, we are going to assume that there are no crystal castles on top of the crystal caverns. There's some video game nerd humor that nobody needed. So basically, the Ringmaster sets up the board. You know, the, the other players uh, have to leave the room. Uh, <laughs> even though we were in the age of systems that could, you know, in theory, keep count of score and other things, a lot of this is still down to the honor system. There are various plastic tokens. There's an hourglass token that runs along one side of the board. You advance it for every every environment visited in the game because that is the passage of time, which really time is what you're trying to beat in this game. Uh, the game is notoriously tough, but you can always go back and try again. The, the limiting factor in the game is that you agree upon a time limit of either 25, 75, in 25, 50, 75, 100 turns, and if all of the rings have been attained by the players in that time. Of course, they win. If they have failed to retrieve all of the rings from the various different kinds of dungeons and other environments, the ringmaster wins, which basically means, you know, this is one of those role-playing game campaigns where the dungeon master crushes the soul and saps the will to live from the entire party by crushing their spirit. So, there you have it. Anyway, let's get to uh, let's get to some actual gameplay. I will tell you that once again, my oldest was player two for the purposes of this quest for the rings, and we. I will admit to you, and we'll get back to this in the in the post mortem. We didn't really play the board game part of it for very long. We finally decided, you know what, this could take up its own whole podcast. Let's just play the video game 
and let everyone hear what that's like and describe that. And we'll, we'll talk about that some more. But right now, let's play. Here's the plan. Let me be the changeling, you be a wizard or a warrior. Okay. So you're the changeling and... Yeah, you fight, you fight them off, I'll go try to get the ring. Push it! We're right next to each other, so it's I think you're going to be better at that than all the sneaking around. Stack goes crazy. Yep, yep. I immediately got you. See, I'm terrible at both. They got me too. They got you too? Yeah. I thought you were still alive. No. They got me while I was invisible. can't kill the spiders, you can just fight them off. Oh, okay, this is not going well. Okay. This is not going well. Yeah, because you're moving as far away from the ring as you can get. Why did you... I tried to run away from the spider! You can fight your way past them. Just don't let them get on top of you. And just, just jump on top of you. that guy with the sword. Get next to him, not on top of him. Oh, you could have gotten that ring. Well, there's no other way. You get him to follow you where you can get side by side with him. first and then the dragon got I wish the dragon would also be fighting the men too. Can you fight the dragons, the baby dragons? You can, you can get them to back away from you, but you can't kill them. What? 
I'm gonna get the ring. Yay, we finally got a ring. I don't think it took us, what, five or six tries? I reappear down in this corner. Oh, yeah. Maybe I should have read the booklet. Alright, just stay alive as long as you can. Fight off the guys, stay away from the dragon. Of me bumping into the wall. Yes, you got it! We've got three rings! Can the bad guys get rings? Can the what? Can the bad guys get rings? No. Okay. Perfect. Hey, there's our strategy there. Yeah. Everybody lives. Oh, it's spider agent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you say everybody lives. Yeah, we got a ring! Five rings. Good. How many rings are there? Ten. Stay up at the top of the screen. Don't. Don't let it get you. It's gonna get you. I know. And they got it too. What? Because they were following you. You should have stayed at the top of the screen. I was gonna try to get the ring. I know, you leave the ring to me because I can I've see the ring. I've never gotten the ring before. I've never gotten the ring before. Alright. Okay. So it's just me. Where I need to be, I'm going straight down. Mr. Mister, because it's just Mr. And that was a band that 
had a lot of songs on the radio about the time this game came out. Maybe a little bit after. Mr. Mister? Yeah. I killed you! Yay! I killed you! Oh, jeez. Yeah, and the guy killed me. I wasn't facing the right direction. I hit the button and I was facing the wrong direction. That was stupid. I love these shape-shifting walls. I think they should always be on the shape-shifting walls. Oh, shifting walls are annoying. Shifting walls are But I like them better than lava. Spider's trapped, good. Yes! I got it! I got it! I got it! And the spider ate me. It did? Yeah, but ate me whenever I got it. So we still only have five. No! It ate me. No, it didn't eat me. Actually, it burned. No, it just it just fried you. It fricasseed you. Steady she goes, I'm invisible. No one can see me. What are the crystal caverns? The invisible walls. I can do this. There are guys all piled up, piled up in the corner. Why is there only one white bad guy? Um, I don't know. Maybe he's the strongest. Whoa, look at that. I got one, but that's me. That's spider. Okay. They made it unfair for me. I'm closer to it. I'll I'll help fight off the monsters. Fight, fight, fight. Oh no, it ate. Oh, the same thing ate both of us. Well I bet its belly is full. Ate both of us at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I got long fangs. Yep. Oh jeez, why do I always have to spawn right next to everything? These are the crystal caverns. Yes, they are. I'll kill all the guys. S yeah, just stay up at the top of the screen, let me do my thing. Unless I need a distraction. Yeah, yes, I got it. got it. Hey, we didn't die. Nobody died. Until the second I get eaten by a spider fly. Okay. Where'd I go? Oh, oh I'm way up there. It. Crap. I, I'm sorry. I didn't. Well, you had no way of knowing that was going to happen. I didn't pay attention. Oh, I died. There I go. I'm going to try to get the rain because I was so close to it. Sorry it's taking us so long to get the rings, everybody. 
They're only just stupid rings. Just. I died. I don't think this will end well. Oh, the guy got me. The dragon did me. Now the dragon got me. He whacked. Now the dragon whacked you in the table. That's about my life. Story of my life, right there. I mean, the dragon whacked you with the tail. Okay, hurry, 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 hurry. This game is so slow. The spiders are gonna get you. Yeah, that one spider still ate me. But hey, at least I got the ring. Before. Notice that whenever, uh, whenever I go invisible and you're not a concern to everyone, everyone clusters around the ring. Everybody, I got the ring. We only have one more to get. Nope. I got nine, you got one. We completed the quest for the rings. No, I only got... I got zero. No, you got one. Remember? So together we got ten. Oh, yeah. What's happening? This is the victory celebration. Pretty wild, isn't it? It, it's kind of like the color-changing mode that old Atari games go into to keep the screen from burning in. Well, it's a celebration that keeps the screen from burning in. Well, yeah, it, keeping the screen from burning in, that is something to celebrate. The setup of the Odyssey 2, con the control system consisting of a joystick and a single action button. Basically, each player's ability is triggered by the action button. If you are the warrior, the action button swings your sword. If you're the wizard, the action button casts a spell. If you are the changeling, then the action button makes you go invisible, but you are moving at half speed, and you have absolutely no way to judge your position. You actually have to decloak, to use a bit of Star Trek terminology, in order to see where in the world you are. And the consequences of that can be quite disastrous because until you do that, you don't know where in the world you are. And the Phantom, the uh, guy who can walk through walls, you have to press the action button to do that. Again, reducing your speed by one half. Now the Phantom cannot walk through the lava walls of the Inferno, so he's pretty much, the Phantom is pretty much neutered in that maze. He is... Uh, I have always found that in the Inferno stages, the Phantom is the pawn sacrifice. He's the guy who goes and gets red-shirted so everyone else can run and get the ring. You can only play two players on this at a time, but I am a, I am a strong advocate for one player being a warrior, the other being a wizard, and just get on with it, because even if one of you dies, the other one can... It, 
at least try momentarily to fend off the advancing hordes and and still achieve the goal of the quest. Now there is one interesting element I had completely forgotten until I cracked open the rules. That is, for a three-player game where you have a, a player who is playing the ringmaster, get a load of this. This is rule number 13, possession. The ringmaster can take possession of either hand control by orally declaring possession. The player at that hand control must relinquish it immediately. The other hero is now is now not only pitted against the monsters, but also against his teammate, who is now possessed by the ringmaster's magic. I, I don't even remember that. <laughs> I would be so pissed. <laughs> it seems like a way to ruin a really good game. Now, what did uh, what did the press at the time think of this? Well, man, if you were if you were Bill Kunkel and Arnie Katz, you loved this game. Video Magazine's Arcade Alley column, which was the forerunner of Electronic Games Magazine and was written by Bill Kunkel and Frank Laney Jr., which was a pseudonym for Arnie Katz because he was writing for some other more serious trade publications at the time. He reviewed Quest for the Rings in the December 1981 issue, and they had this to say about it. Odyssey has also extended the horizons of home video gaming with Quest for the Rings. This hybrid design has aspects of both video game and board game. Since the human players perform some functions the system itself would otherwise handle, moving the heroes around within the game's mythical country, for instance, it gives Odyssey the scope to create more intricate games. Ironically, Quest, like the manufacturer's original Odyssey, uses overlays. This time, however, it's an opaque plate that fits over the system's diaphragm keyboard to aid players in programming the details of Quest's dungeons. The June 1983 issue of Electronic Games had this to say about Quest for the Rings. Actually, okay, it doesn't have this to say, but it did give it a recommendation in the Player's Guide to Fantasy Games. In the same breath that they were recommending Advanced Dungeons & Dragons for the Intellivision and Dragon Stomper for the Atari 2600 with the Starpath Supercharger. Wow. Um, I love the Odyssey 2. I love the Odyssey 2 library. I am not sure I would put Quest for the Rings in a category with either of those games. It's a valiant attempt. In the 1982 Arcade Awards, published in Electronic Games Magazine, there was an honorable mention for Video Game of the Year, if you can believe that. The award was won by Atari's Asteroids for the 2600. This is what the honorable mention said. The first board game video game hybrid is a lot more than just a design curiosity. It's a solid playable cartridge that casts two arcaders as a team of adventurers attempting to defeat the forces of evil in a land of magic, mystery, and danger. However, Quest for the Rings did win the 1982 Arcade Award for Most Innovative Game. Here's the quote that accompanied that award. There's no question the Odyssey has charted a bold new path for video games with this adventure fantasy cartridge. 
Blending off-screen movement on a colorful map board with an electronic combat game can only be called inspired. By assigning some of the details of play to the human participants, Odyssey was able to create a game with lots of variable factors to keep the action continuously fresh while still providing the kind of visual pyrotechnics arcaders adore. Another ingenious feature is that the program makes use of the Odyssey keyboard to allow players to customize the stocking of the various dungeons and labyrinths that lie beneath the castles on the map. This makes every play session unique while preventing adventurers from developing sure-win strategies that would ultimately rob Quest for the Rings of much of its excitement. Atari 2600 Asteroids and Activision's Freeway were runners-up in that category for most innovative game of the year for 1982. And Quest was a runner-up for another category in the 1982 Arcade Awards, Best Audio-Visual Effects. Not really, not really a phrase that people throw around a lot with the Odyssey 2 library. One of the joys of this game is the way the designer has given each type of monster not only a unique look, but a distinctive mode of movement and attack. Having to watch a Spydroth Tyrantulus drop down on the head of your hero and suck him into its gaping maw is a sight the electronic adventurer will not soon forget. Uh, Quest for the Rings was the only runner-up in the category of Best Audiovisual Effects. The winner was Activision's Kaboom. And it, I mentioned this earlier, there's actually officially merchant there's officially released merchandise endorsed by Magnavox for this game. There was a 21 by 17 inch artwork poster using different art than what was on the box, which it may or may not have been an alternate an alternate cover design that was rejected. There was also a t-shirt with iron-on design of the cover artwork from the box on the front and the Odyssey 2 logo on the back. And there was also a similar t-shirt released to promote the game in the Brazilian market. Where of course the Odyssey 2 game was simply known as Odyssey. Now, going back to that March 1982 Electronic Games article that interviews Ed Averett and Steve Lehner Ed Averett had this to say, in this game the action is a lot more than just a roll of the dice. I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure about that. I know I'm doing an Odyssey 2 podcast and I really should be the chief advocate for the system and you know, I still love it. It's still a lot of fun. But here's the thing, for lack of a third player we had to play a scaled-down, watered-down version of the game for two players. And I also messed up some details of getting the board set up. And I'll be quite honest, in the end, we did what I have always done with Quest for the Rings, which was we gave up on the board game and just played the cartridge. The beauty of Quest for the Rings, more so than any of the other master strategy games that came out for the Odyssey 2, is that you could just play the cartridge. The minimum you really need to play this is one other human being, one other player, the cartridge, and the overlay. It's kind of ironic because Quest for the Rings could be done now, and the computer could handle the whole thing, and it would probably... Well, I say it would go over well. It would probably be a curiosity at best. There you go, emulator programmers. There's there's your next challenge. Simulate the board game part of the Master Strategy games. 
At the time that Quest for the Rings came out, I was a lot like every other nerdy kid in America. And you have to keep in mind, I kind of come from the Bible Belt. I was fascinated by the forbidden and evil and dangerous thing that I was hearing about called Dungeons and Dragons. And despite the number of parents and various various authority figures telling people, you know, don't play this game, it's, you know, don't play Dungeons and Dragons, it will introduce you to Satan. The problem was that uh, even though I talked my mom into getting me a basic set with, you know, quite a few really nice dice, which I still have to this day, and even though they've been tumbled a lot, they're in great shape. You know, and I got the miniatures and the supplement books, the, you know, the add-on game modules. My problem was, I didn't really have anyone to play the game with. And that's kind of the same problem I ran into with Quest for the Rings. You need three people to play this the way the book outlines it. And for lack of that, you're probably like us. You wound up just playing the cartridge, which is entirely possible to do. You know, it's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons. I had friends who were either, you know, the people I wanted to play with. Their parents had forbidden them to play with it. I had one friend who was forbidden from going down the Dungeons and Dragons rabbit hole because of his parents' religious objections. And then there were the kids who were already playing it, were much more experienced than I did, and they were so into it, they kind of frightened me. I mean, I don't know if you remember... Uh, Rona Jaffe's Mazes and Monsters, which is a movie that came out in, I think, 1983, and it starred very young Tom Hanks. It, it was really the first dramatic thing we'd seen him do after Bosom Buddies, and he was really good in it and really kind of scary in it, and that movie was a kind of an ultra-conservative scare piece. But the thing was, there were kids who were that into it. That movie did not happen in a vacuum, I'm sad to say. And it really really tarnished the whole thing for a lot of people. I've mentioned before that uh, I could always rope my mom into playing baseball with me on the Odyssey 2. And several other games like Alien Invaders Plus. She really wasn't into Quest for the Rings at all. It didn't fascinate her. It didn't strike her as fun. She certainly didn't want to mess with the board game element, which was kind of off-putting as, you know, as an adult. She didn't want to get into all that intricate setup. And, you know, that used to disappoint me so much. Well, the funny thing is, yeah, there's, a, there's a phrase in the South that you pay for your raisin. And by raisin, I don't mean a dehydrated grape. I mean your raising, your upbringing. And my own son likes to dabble in designing his own games. But he comes up with these really complicated things with stats and battle moves. Basically, he's trying to make Pokemon on paper. And at the same time, I'm sitting there fixing dinner and thinking, you know, couldn't we play Scrabble or Connect Four or Monopoly? Exploding Kittens? You know, can we play one of these stupid server games that we can't stay coordinated on? And so that's the glory and ultimately the downfall of the quest for the rings is that complication factor. I have, I will be quite honest with you, 
and maybe this disqualifies me completely as someone reviewing this game, I've never been able to play this game the way the booklet says to because I've never had that player three around. You know, somehow I just, I don't think my, my other son, who is soon to be two years old, I don't think he wants to be the ringmaster. Although it would be kind of, uh, would be kind of funny to have a toddler running around the room saying, Possession! But that, uh, yeah. That's a, that's a sure way to lose custody, is to teach a toddler to run around and say, Possession! Your soul is mine! <laughs> so, still not going to happen. Still not going to find that third player. Still not going to be able to play the game the way that Steve Lehner and Ron Bradford intended for the board game side of it to be played. Fortunately, the cartridge is eminently playable. It's a lot of fun. It's very difficult. And it. this isn't a game like Joust where you can just turn against your buddy and that's okay. This is a game where you have to, you've got to have a good friend playing with you because one of you's going down and you know, the other one is going to be pouring out a keg of ale over the next campfire and saying this one's for my homie because one of you is not making it out of that dungeon alive. As we demonstrated so many times as we were playing the game. It's interesting to note that in the articles about the gestation of Quest for the Rings that it was already known that the other two titles in the Master Strategy series were going to be Conquest of the World and The Great Wall Street Fortune Hunt, both of which came you know, several months, if not a year in the case of The Great Wall Street Fortune Hunt, after Quest for the Rings did. These games had a long gestation period and... I would argue anyone on the following point, neither of those games was as playable and addictive as Quest for the Rings. Quest for the Rings is a hard game, but it's a fun one. Conquest of the World was kind of like, it was kind of like they were trying to disguise the fact that they had made Atari 2600 Combat for the Odyssey 2 by sticking a board game on it. And The Great Wall Street Fortune Hunt uh, is just a game I really... Uh, I have a feeling when I get to that one, I'm going to talk about it for about 10 minutes, and that'll be it. <laughs> it's not a favorite of mine. So that's it for our own quest for the Quest for the Rings. Hope you've enjoyed it. This is... Uh, this is a game that people have been asking, you know, when are you going to do Quest for the Rings? Yeah, since the first podcast. Yeah, this is one of those games that everyone remembers and remembers as being a big thing, and they're not wrong. And Quest for the Rings was a... It's, it's a really neat idea. I'm not sure the execution was all that it could have been, but you... You absolutely cannot knock it on that packaging. The packaging is fantastic. Um, and this was kind of my gateway drug into computer RPGs, which is a rabbit hole that led me into things such as Tunnels of Doom on the TI-99 4A, which 
uh, ironically, the, the friend of mine whose mother had religious objections to him playing Dungeons and Dragons was okay with him spending hours playing Tunnels of Doom, which I remember the theme song for that game to this day. It's just a wonderful little piece of computer music. And on the Apple II, you know, I continue to disappear into <laughs> disappear into computer RPGs, playing the likes of Telengard, Ultima 3, and you know the life-changing Ultima 4, which I could do a whole podcast series on that game by itself. Yeah, I should do the Ultima games sometime. I'm sure there's an Ultima podcast out there somewhere. I should look into that. If not, hey, we know what I'm doing next year. Thanks again for listening, as always. And stick around, because we will be selecting more games to play next month on Select Game Expanded Memories of the Odyssey 2. That's all the time we have for the Select Game Podcast. You can hear Select Game on iTunes, Stitcher, and throwbacknetwork.net. And you can also subscribe through the RSS feed. You'll find the podcast itself and occasional goodies associated with it at www.thelogbook.com slash selectgame. If you really dig Select Game, also check out the 365-day-a-year Escape Pod Geek History Podcast at thelogbook.com. And donations toward the site's upkeep are always gladly accepted at PayPal, or via my Amazon wish lists. You can also support the podcast by buying select game t-shirts and other goodies at redbubble.com. Look under user The Logbook. Phosphor.Fossils, a comprehensive timeline of the golden era of video games, including The Odyssey 2, can be downloaded at thelogbook.com, which is also where you can find the books I've written about Doctor Who, Warp 1 and Warp 2. Feel free to drop me a line at the Facebook page for thelogbook.com, via Twitter at logbookguy, or email me at earl at thelogbook.com. Select Game Expanded Memories of the Odyssey 2 is a production of thelogbook.com and was written and produced by Earl Green. Music performed by Kasatochi, available for free download at thelogbook.com.